Thanksgiving dinner, 50-year-old Bart Campolo announced to his famous evangelical pastor father, Tony Campolo, that after a lifetime immersed in the Christian faith, he no longer believed in God. The revelation shook the Campolo family dynamic and forced father and son to each reconsider his own personal journey of faith. These dual spiritual investigations into theology, faith, and humanism eventually led Bart and Tony back to one another. It also led them to co-author the book I'm looking at today, called Why I Left, Why I Stayed. In it, the Campolos reflect on their individual spiritual odysseys and how they evolved when their paths diverged. Tony recounts his experience from the initial heartbreak of discovering Bart's change in faith to the subsequent healing he found in his own self-examination to his embracing of his son's point of view. Bart writes about his faith journey from progressive Christianity to humanism, revealing how it affected his outlook and transformed his relationship with his father. As Why I Left, Why I Stayed makes clear, a painful schism between father and son that could have divided them irreparably became instead an opening that offered each an invaluable look not only at what separated them, but more importantly, what they shared. These insights can, no doubt, be helpful for many of us who navigate differences of faith within our own families. Best-selling Christian author and activist Tony Campolo is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Eastern University and a former faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. He has also been a pastor, public speaker, and spiritual advisor to U.S. President Bill Clinton. He founded the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education and provided leadership for the progressive Christian movement Red Letter Christians and the Campolo Center for Ministry. He's been a guest on programs such as The Colbert Report, The Charlie Rose Show, Larry King Live, Nightline, Crossfire, and Politically Incorrect. Bart Campolo now considers himself a secular community builder, working as a counselor, speaker, the humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati, and as host of the award-winning podcast, Humanize Me. Through his work, he aims to inspire and assist people around the world who are banding together to actively pursue goodness in an openly secular way. He's been written about in the New York Times Magazine and is the subject of the documentary film, Leaving My Father's Faith. Bart joins me today to discuss the book he wrote with his father, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism, a channel on the New Books Network. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Bart Campolo to talk about his book, co-written with his father, Tony Campolo, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. Bart, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So on this show, we like to start by asking our authors how they ended up in their field. But in your case, your life story is really a central feature of this book. So I thought maybe we could start with the early years. Bring us up to the moment of that faithful, fateful Thanksgiving conversation you had with your parents. Well, you know, my, I think, my, first of all, I mean, one, an important thing to know about my parents is that my dad is like this very prominent evangelical Christian leader. So I literally grew up kind of in that world. Um, and for as long as I can remember, my dad was the guy up on stage giving the talks. And um, he's a really charismatic, interesting, fun person. And so that world was always really interesting to me. But um, growing up, I thought it was cool and everything, but I didn't actually grow up sort of believing in God. Like the, the idea didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Like I knew my parents were sincere in their, you know, excitement about it. Um, but I just kind of was along for the ride. I didn't want to embarrass anybody. And so I went through all that. It wasn't until I was in high school that I, a friend of mine um, on, on my soccer team took me along to his youth group. And so although I knew, like I knew all the language, but I'd never been around. Um, I, I had never been exposed to it kind of outside of my dad and all that stuff. And I walk into this youth group and there's like 500 kids and it's this kind of high energy, exciting environment of all these nice kids being nice to each other. And I just was like, oh, this is great, you know? And, um, and so I, I started hanging around with that youth group. And, you know, at some point my buddy took me out to McDonald's and said, hey, you know, 
you've been hanging around, but I don't think you've ever surrendered your life to Jesus. Do you want to be a Christian or what? And I was like, yes, I do. And so I prayed the prayer and I became a Christian. And, um, and, and it took me a while. Like I, I was sort of going through the motions, but at some point, like I was up on one of those Christian retreats and everyone's singing the songs and it's late at night and there's the fire. And, and I felt something. I had what I guess you would call a transcendent moment, you know? Um, and you can have those. And I think whatever narrative that you're in, when you have it, it confirms that narrative. And so like, I felt something, I, you know, you could call collective effervescence or groupthink or whatever, but like I got swept up in it. And all of a sudden I was like, this is it. God is real. This is true. I'm in. And I became a very born again Christian at 15. And so, you know, from that point forward, you know, I, I was just so excited. Like I felt like I had a new sense of identity, a new mission in life. You know, I had a, a community that made sense to me and, um, you know, I, I was just off to the races and, you know, very shortly thereafter, the first thing anybody asked me to do for Jesus when I would have done anything for Jesus was to go to and run a summer camp in the inner city of Camden, New Jersey. Um, and so I found myself in this ghetto working with all these little kids and I was like, ah, you know, overwhelmed with the poverty and overwhelmed with stuff. And before I knew it, like, that's what I was going to do with my life is I was going to, I was going to serve Jesus by loving poor kids in the inner city. And that's pretty much what I did for the next 30 years. Okay. I mean, is that the story you were looking for? Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely it. Yeah, because I think uh, a little later we'll get to, get to where the doubt began. But um, and, uh, I mean, I mean, and maybe that, like, that, like, we're already past where the doubt began. Because, you know, people sometimes say to me, like, when did you start? To, to doubt your faith or when, you know, when did you begin to become skeptical? And I was like, oh, five minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Like, oh gosh, really? Okay. Yeah. The supernatural part of Christianity was always hard for me. Like the okay. idea of like people rising from the dead and flying into heaven and red seas parting. And like in the kind of Christianity that I was brought into, like that stuff was literally true. And it was always hard for me. Um, yeah, it was the community and the mission and the, the, the loving each other that, that like for me, believing in God and going to heaven and hell and all that stuff, that was the price of admission to be a part of this community. Um, and so, and so I struggled with the faith all the way through and, and sort of if you charted my journey as a Christian, you know, there was a point at which I was like, is God really sending people to hell? And I, I felt in that I couldn't deal with that. And like, I kind of became a universalist Christian. And then like I had gay roommates in college and I was like, uh, I started being okay with, you know, it took me a while, but I worked my way into the place where I was like this Christian guy who performed gay marriages. And, and you know, like I slowly, you know, my, my supernatural stuff sort of died the death of a thousand cuts over those 30 years of ministry. I, I, Throughout my time as a Christian, I became more and more committed to the community and ministry and to loving relationships and, and, and to, to social justice. And I became less and less able to believe in a, you know, omnipotent God that actually did anything in, in the world, you know, and again, I'm in the inner city. So like we're praying a lot of prayers that are not getting answered. And so I slowly got to the place where I was like, this became really hard for me. So I want to ask you as well about the format of the book, because you and your father went with a somewhat unconventional structure of alternating short chapters that read almost like a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so um, as we mentioned, there was this night at, on Thanksgiving that you told him that um, that you didn't believe anymore. Um, and then fast forward some years and you guys have decided to write this book together. And I'm wondering what was the catalyst that sparked your decision to do this and why you chose to write it in the way that you did. Well, I mean, the short version of that story is, you know, by the time I would like, you know, I'm married with two kids living in Cincinnati in the inner city, working with people um, towards the end of my Christian journey. And I'm making my living as a platform speaker. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of 
I, I'm just working with very poor people all the time and, and, and I ride a bicycle. And so one day I go off for, for my bike ride and I end up having a really bad crash. I don't even remember it. I just remember leaving my house and I remember waking up in the, waking up in the hospital. And, um, and if I hadn't been wearing a helmet, I would have died. But as it was, I had, I had pretty serious trauma, like big concussion. And I, I, I couldn't think straight for a month. Um, and when I finally recovered from that, I remember sitting with my wife and saying like, wow, like you smashed my head against a tree and I change. And I got, I, I said, I, I remember saying to my wife, like, I think that when my brain dies, I'll be gone. Like, I think this life is all we get. And she said, yeah, I, I thought that for a long time. And she said, I, I think that you need to stop being a professional Christian because there's nothing left. And uh, you don't believe any of it. And so that was, that was shortly before that Thanksgiving conversation with my dad, because, you know, at some point I go like, yeah, I, I think you're right. So ultimately, you know, the first, you know, the first person, the person I'm closest to in the faith, the person who, you know, we've talked a lot, we worked together on a lot of projects, my dad, we're close. And so, yeah, when they came out for Thanksgiving, Marty and I sat him down and said, hey, you know, I know you've been worried that I'm a heretical Christian or I'm a progressive Christian or I'm a Christian who's in danger of heresy, but like, I'm just, I'm a post-Christian. Like I'm done. There's nothing left. And that was incredibly hard for him. You know, I just remember watching his head just drop and it, it, it you know, it hit him. It, it shouldn't have surprised him. And he looks back and he's like, I should have seen it coming. In fact, I think one of the chapters in the book is called, I should have seen it coming. Um, but he didn't. And it was just devastating to him. And we talked that night. Um, and he was just, he was worried about me. Not, not, I don't think worried that I was going to burn in hell. I think he was just worried, like, what are you going to do for a living? And where are you going to find your community? And how are you going to live a meaningful life? Like, because for him, that's the only context in which he's seen that stuff. Um, and a, a couple of weeks later, he called me and he said, listen, I'm, I'm really trying to wrap my head around this, but he said, I, he said, I, I really want to know. He said, we, could I take you on a trip? Like I'm going to England in a few weeks. Could you go with me? And we would just talk every day. He said, I just want to talk it. I just want to understand. He's like, I, I, I'm not going to try to talk you back into anything. I just want to understand. And so we did, we went to England and we sat in cafes and we talked and talked and talked. And about halfway through those conversations, my dad said, you know, I think I'm finally starting to understand. He said, I, I've never really talked to somebody who's approaching it the way that you are. He said, this is really good for me. He said, not many fathers and sons can talk like this about this. He said, I know lots of people whose kids have left the faith and they haven't had these conversations. And he said, I think this is really good. I think we ought to, I think we ought to write this stuff down. You know, I, th I think this is a conversation we should share. And that was where the idea for the book came from. It actually came from that conversation. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And that's why, and that's why in the end, the book takes a conversational tone because it, it's, it's, it's kind of a version of those conversations. It works really well, too, because you approach topic by topic and each of you gives your side of the story and your perspective and it, it speaks back and forth to a to um, either side and, and you know, yeah, it, it, it works well for you. you oh, <laughs> and, and, but what I mean, it's like, it works well for like, cause you're interested in that conversation. Like I can tell you're the kind of secular woman that has Christian close people in your life. Ah, okay. And so, you know, people like you and me are like, how do we talk with those people and how do we listen? And how do you know, is it, where do you find common ground? My publisher told me later, he's like, yeah, I kind of knew this book wasn't going to sell very many copies. He said, because when people buy a book, they want, they want their perspective. They don't, want to, they don't want to spend half the book listening to the other side. And so if you're just looking for a book about humanism, you know, you, you go like, well, you only get half a book. And if you're just looking for a book of apologetics or, or sort of like how to, how, to, how to deal with your Christian child, um, you only get half a book. 
Um, it's only interesting if you, what you're really interested in is how do we have really good conversations with people who think differently? Huh. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I read some of the comments that people had made about your book on Goodreads as well. And I found that there were a lot of like-minded people there as well, who definitely were there interested in both sides of the conversation and had some very, very thoughtful responses as well. So um, maybe we're a self-selecting group. Um, but so you make your doubt sound very reasonable from my perspective. Um, you talk about your experience in Camden, New Jersey, um, about how your experience of the world seemed to contradict claims made by the Bible. You found yourself adjusting your beliefs as required, as you mentioned. Um, and then you increasingly found it challenging to persuade others to adopt what you call a whole set of unbelievable iron age myths, which, um, which I can understand as well. Um, but your father seems not to struggle with questions of belief in the Bible or in God at all. Um, and so it seems like he just feels the realness, if you will, of it in a rather imminent way. So I'm wondering, do you think this is an accurate assessment? And why do you suppose there's this difference in feeling um, between different people? And do you think that makes uh, his perspective on belief more or less persuasive? I mean, one of the things I appreciate about my dad is, is that, you know, he's a very thoughtful, well-read, educated guy. And so he's not going to come at, he's not going to, I don't think his own faith or his evangelism is ever based on saying like, look, I've done the math. Like these things, these are the most rational claims or, you know, I've got the archaeology or I've got, you know, I've got the, the historical record, like this actually happened. You know, he's not Josh McDowell or, or Ravi Zacharias or one of these guys who's going to try to convince you that Christianity objectively makes more sense than any other worldview. On, on the contrary, what he's going to say is like, you know, almost to quote the Apostle Paul, who says, you know, for the unbeliever, the gospel is foolishness. Like, it, you know, it, it makes no sense. Um, it's an implausible narrative. It's a crazy story. Um, the reason that he believes it is because he was exposed to the gospel as a young person. And he he, he tried it in, in the way that you might try an exercise program or try Alcoholics Anonymous or try something else where somebody's like, this is a way of life. This is a... This is a belief system and it's a way of life. Try it. And he stepped into it. It was appealing to him. Like the people that were selling it to him, just like the people that sold it to me, were super nice and super alive and super connected and, and seemed to be living really meaningful lives. And so he stepped into it and it worked. Like he prayed the prayers. He went to the Bible studies. He adopted the worldview and his life took shape and he experienced a sense of identity and purpose and dynamism. And he experienced that sense of transcendence, that sense of there's a presence in my life. And, and, and that, that experience confirmed the narrative that he was in. Like he'll tell you that, like there's no news there. Um, you know, and so he believes that through Christianity, he actually met met God, like that he has a personal relationship with God. And, and he, when he prays, you know, he, he, he hears voices, if you will. And he said, well, come, come on, he's making it up. He doesn't really hear voices. It, no, like if you go through certain kinds of rituals, if you go through certain kinds of practices, you will very reliably hear voices and, and, and it happens in all kinds of traditions. And if you use the right drugs, you'll hear voices. And if, if, if you, if you deprive yourself of sleep, you'll hear voices. And if you meditate, you, you now, and, and some people go like, well, I just think that's another part of my brain talking, you know, like it's just me opening up a different channel to another part of my brain. And you're like, yeah, well, if that's, if that's the narrative that you're in, that's how it'll seem to you. If you're in a narrative that says there's a supernatural God out there, you'll be like that. God's talking to me. I know because I was in that narrative and I felt like God was talking to me. 
Hmm. So, so I think that in a sense, I have, I don't want to say more respect, but I, I understand and I'm more persuaded by somebody who says, I, I, kn- I know that I know that God is real because he talks to me. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but like, I feel like that's a lot more plausible than saying, I know that God is real because look around you, the evidence is, you know, incontrovertible. And I'm like, actually, there's very little evidence that there's anyone, that there's a benevolent presence, you know, you know, working out his will in the universe. That, that, that I, I don't see any evidence of that. But, but if somebody says to me, but like, I feel a connection to a, to a, a, a transcendent being, and they're like, oh, okay, well, that, I believe you. I believe that you feel that. That does kind of, that does help me understand his perspective, certainly. Um, And it kind of leads to my next question as well, or helps me understand the answer perhaps to my next question, which was about a comment that your father makes about uh, beliefs being highly susceptible to the company we keep and then the beliefs of our culture at large. So he suggests that your faith was weakened because you spent so much time around non-believers, which struck me initially as, as a little confusing because I thought that the Christian narrative was about the power and strength of God to, um, I think there's a line in the Bible somewhere about you take, all you have to do is take the first step towards God and he magically fills in all the rest. And that is not this- in the Bible. That is, <laughs> Oh no, maybe no, that was that just in my Sunday Christ- school. Okay. That is in some really Christian Sunday school ah, curriculum, but like, okay. no. <laughs> Because it seems to me like um, if if all it takes for faith to kind of rust and drop away is to just be ministering to people that are non-believers, it just struck me as not a great endorsement. Well, I have to tell you, Carrie Lynn, um, you know, if this, I, I don't know if you ever heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a very famous psychological experiment. Where they took two identical groups of young people and they put them, one were the prisoners and one were the guards. And you go like... It didn't matter what they came in with. Before long, the setting that they were in, the, 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 the situation, caused one group to become despondent and, and angry and anti-authoritarian and the other group to come, become abusive and controlling. Uh, and, and, and the point is, is that we would like to believe that our identities and our belief systems, which are a part of those identities, are solid and that no matter where you put us, we would be the same people. But there's no evidence for that. The fact of the matter is, is that we're all susceptible to our environments. And we're all susceptible. You know, there, there are a lot of really positive, upbeat people that in the midst of this COVID thing are going like, I just don't feel happy like I used to. And you're like, yeah, if I change your routines, I'm going to change your your emotional state and, and 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 that could ultimately lead to also changing some of your your beliefs about how the world works and so my dad's very as a sociologist he knows that and he knows that you know what the bible really says is you know you better always stay in fellowship <laughs> you know you know the, the christian tradition is is rife with with teachings that say like don't neglect meeting together with other believers like because there's a sense in which you know, and Christianity grew out of Judaism, and Judaism knows better better than anything. If you want to hold the people together, you got to have rituals, and you got to you got to be together, and you have to mutually reinforce each other in your belief system. Political parties know this, armies know this, football teams know this, marching bands know this. Like, you know, that there's a sense in which we're we're all shaped by the. the the structures and, 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 and the people around us. And so what I would say to people is people say, how do we help kids learn to, to overcome peer pressure? And I go, like, oh, no, you don't. You teach them to pick the right peers because, because that's the best you can do. Like we are, you're going to be influenced by the people around you. And again, it sidesteps the question of, is any of this actually real or not? Right. And, and, and I think, on some level, um, Alain Dubouton, who's one of my favorite sort of secular writers, um, he gave this great TED talk called Atheism 2.0. And the first line of it, he says, the most boring question you can ask about any religion 
is whether or not it's true. <laughs> and what he means by that is he's just like, look, you can't prove any of this stuff. Like you can't, I mean, Carolyn, you can't prove that you're not living in a computer simulation. <laughs> to an extent. You know, I mean, everybody has, there's a leap of faith that you have to, you can't prove that we're not all, everybody's not a robot except for you. And, you know, and that you're living in, like, like it's, everybody has to take some little leap of faith. Even if the leap of faith is just that, like, I believe that reality is as it appears to me. But, but, but you and I both know that, like, you see some spectrums of light and other spectrums of light you don't see, but they're still there. You know, like, like that, that even what you see of reality isn't all of reality, that like everything is subjective and there's, and so, that, so in some sense, I can't prove that there's no God. There could be a, you know, maybe God is in a thimble on the other side of Venus, you know, and he's, you know, and he, and he just hasn't chosen to come out yet. Like, you know, so all I can, you know, so like the idea of like, is it true? The, a better question to ask is, does it work? Does it get you where you want to go? Does it, does it help you? pursue the values that you have. I mean, like, and, and so on some level, you know, people say like, I bet you wish you could talk everybody out of Christianity. Like, no, no, there's some Christians I just want to leave alone. Like they're doing fine. And they're able to believe in Christianity because that's the way they were raised. And they wouldn't be able to believe in the epic of evolution that I believe in and to be joyful about the idea that life is finite and that that they're going to die someday and that that's why they should make the most of this life. Like, like my worldview causes me to be grateful for my life and causes me to want to love other people. But that same worldview wouldn't work that same way for somebody else. If my father right now abandoned Christianity and believed that, that there was nothing waiting for him on the other side... I, I don't think he would immediately become joyful at the finitude of life and the meaning that that gives it. I think he would just despair. So like, I'm happy for him to stay Christian. I don't care if it's true. Fair enough. Um, I want to ask you about your discovery that you could be an evangelical for humanism, as you put it. Um, and that atheism's, atheism doesn't have to be a negative effort focused on tearing down religion. So uh, you mentioned that both Robert Ingersoll and Greg Epstein were inspirations for you that you read. Uh, and so I was just wondering if you could talk about this discovery a little bit and what you gleaned from these two authors and speakers. Interesting. I mean, th those are two books that were turning points in my life. When I, when I, when I first left the faith, um, again, my, my values stayed the same. I, you know, I, I, I was like, I, I can't do this Christian thing anymore, but I still was excited about pursuing goodness. And I felt like, I, you know, I'm religious by nature. Like I want a worldview that sort of corresponds with the way I'm living my little life. Like I want to say like, ah, you know, I, because the world is created this way, this, that's why I think it's important to love this person. And so when, when my Christian worldview fell apart, I quickly went looking for another one. And a buddy of mine gave me a book um, called The Great Agnostic. It's by a woman named Susan Jacoby. And it was a biography of Robert Ingersoll, who was, at the end of the 19th century, the most, he, had, he, had, he, was, he was the most prolific public speaker in the history of the world. He had spoken to more people in person than any other human being. He was a hugely dynamic communicator. And he was a, he was a Darwin popularizer who preached against the church and against Christianity, like at a time when you wouldn't have thought you could get away with it, but he was so winsome and he was so funny and he was so warm that even Christians loved to go hear him um, poke at them. Um, and, and he was an, a, a feminist and he was a, he was a, an environmentalist and he believed in, 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 in animal rights and, and, and he was an anti-war guy. He was just this great human being. And I read this biography of him and I thought, ah, oh, that's the kind of humanist I want to be. That, you know, he was the person that really convinced me that 
you could take secular goodness and make it preach that you could that you could you could talk about it in a way that would be attractive and and not so much attractive to like hardcore christians but attractive to to people who didn't believe in god but weren't yet turned on to life you know and that that that, that became my thing it's like i don't want to go and try to talk all these christians out of their faith if if they want to stay in it i'm looking for people for whom that faith isn't working you know, people, either people like me who Christianity just doesn't seem plausible anymore, or like gay Christians who are like, it, it hates me, um, or people that are, have been secular their whole lives, but like, they're just excited about making rich people richer, or they're just watching a lot of television. I'm like, no, like, if you really take seriously this life and, 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 and the miracle of, of identity, like, this is an amazing opportunity and the way to make the most of it is to love people and to make things better for people and to cultivate wonder and gratitude. And so Ingersoll, that book was like gold to me. And, but, but, but I still, I couldn't figure out like, I'm not in the, I'm not going to be a platform speaker in the 1890s. So like, what do I do? And that was when I came across Greg Epstein's book. Um, and Greg is the humanist chaplain at Harvard. Um, and he had written this book called Good Without God. And it was about being a humanist chaplain on a college campus. And as I read it and he described the group and the kids and the way that they interacted, I thought, that sounds like every youth group I was ever a part of. Like, I, I got to find out more. So I literally, I flew to Boston, went to, went to meet him. He said, I, I won't show me this thing that you're doing. And when I saw what he was doing with college students, I thought, that's what I could do. I could be a, I could be a university chaplain. I could work with young people in that way. And so those books... The one opened up a different way of being, and the other one opened up a different way of doing life. Oh, that's fantastic. And you mentioned the term secular spirituality. So I was hoping you might be able to elaborate for us what you mean by that term. Well, you know, in the simplest analysis, there's, there are qualities of life that are ineffable. You know, that they're hard to describe. Um, there are experiences that we have falling in love, um, walking into a place and feeling like you're home. You know, I mean, I'm sure that someday brain scientists will be able to like chart the particular synapse in which that experience is happening. But in our experience, there are these things like being, being at a rock concert and feeling swept up and feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and these are sometimes very wonderful experiences. And some people cultivate them. They go like, I know that if I light candles, and if I play a certain kind of music, and if I drink or eat certain kinds of foods and wines, that I'm going to end up feeling romantic. My wife and I are going to end up feeling romantic towards each other. And you go like, yeah, you know, that, that's true. You're just, you know, and, and you go like, so, so you know that like you're being manipulated, emotionally manipulated, or you're manipulating yourself. And you go like, yeah, that's why I do it. Cause I want to feel that way. That's why I get on a roller coaster because I want to feel thrilled. And I think secular spirituality is sort of admitting like, look, as human beings, our brains and our, and our guts and our emotions are susceptible to certain kinds of experiences. And some of those are profoundly good for us and profoundly good for our relationships. And they build our communities and they build us up as people and they, and they give us the fortitude to handle very difficult and painful circumstances. And so we cultivate, we try to figure out like, how can I make myself feel that? How can I cause this group to experience that? What are the things? So secular spirituality is about taking seriously the idea that you can cultivate a side of yourself that, although it's very difficult to quantify, it's undeniably important to your experience. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with believing in supernatural ghosts, or, you know, or or or. or, or some something out there that you're trying to connect with it's 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 much more about you know sort of how do i how do i set myself up to see a side of 
life and to see a side of reality that would be good for me to see. Well, if I can turn the conversation to something a little bit darker. Take it where you want it to go, Carrie. Take it where you want it to go. (laughs) But I think a really inevitable question when you're having this kind of conversation is about the topic of death. And you and your father do tackle this topic in your book, the question of if anything comes afterward. And uh, I found Tony's argument for the Christian belief in the afterlife Uh, He invokes some ideas that were novel to me along those lines, like he connects being present in the moment with um, a concept or some some connection to the experience of eternal life um, and how his religion allows him to be more present in the moment by helping him deal with guilt over the past, as well as taking care of anxiety over the future. Um, But in some, uh, I'll go back to something I kind of mentioned before, which is it it boils down to a standard Christian argument that one should believe in an afterlife because of how it makes you feel now. And um, aside from the scientific reasons to be skeptical about postmortem sentience, um, you argue that it's only through an awareness of our impending death that life comes alive. So I was hoping you might be able to tell us about your discussions with your father on this topic. Uh, you know, it's interesting because my dad had a stroke about a month and a half ago, and uh, he's 85, and he's paralyzed, and he almost died, and he, and he knows better than he's ever known that, that he's coming close to the end. And so, you know, these conversations, they're, they're very real. Like, like you know, and, and when we wrote the book, they were a little less real, um, but but he was already old enough that... I think, I think in many ways, it's very natural. Ingersoll, my, my hero, Robert Ingersoll, said that as long as people love each other and as long as people die, people will invent the possibility of eternal life. Just because if you love somebody and they go, you want to believe, you, 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 you go like, there must be some way I'm going to see them again. You know, there must be, it's this very, so, so, so it's a natural desire. Like I'm never, I'm never surprised that somebody wants to believe in eternal life. It, it may be implausible, but it's a, it's a, it's a good fantasy um, until you really think about it. And I think that for me, one of the things that I realized was is that when I think about eternal life and every fictional depiction of eternal life I've ever seen, it ends up being a burden and a curse. Um, that you're trapped, that you, you know, we human beings are finite beings. Like our brains have finite capacities. And so like the only, like, like at some point you, you can only take in so much before you would have to start downloading stuff or or erasing stuff so that you can make room for new experiences. And at that point, wouldn't that be like dying anyway? You'd be losing that part of yourself. And so I think that if the feast lasted forever, we'd get tired of it. If the feast lasted forever, we, would, we wouldn't love each other because one of the things that creates the urgency to love each other is, is a sense that we have only a finite amount of time. I mean, the time I spend with you is precious precisely because I, 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 don't, have, I don't have an infinite amount of it. And that... We death, in a sense, creates an urgency to forgive, to work things out. You know, if you've ever been at somebody's bedside, you'll see them like sometimes frantically trying to like make things right with people that they held grudges against, and you know, and you think like, oh yeah, you see, you didn't. You're only now becoming aware that your time is short, but your time was always short. And so, for me, death is part of the bargain and it's not the worst part of the bargain. There are way worse things than dying. Um, but for my dad, I think, especially because he's invested so much of his life in the gospel, I mean, he's, 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 he's sunk so much investment in that, that if that turned out not to be true, I think he might fear that he was wasting his life. So I, sometimes I think he holds on to the, the belief in eternal life because that validates the life that he's lived. Um, but I think there's, you know, like, you know, I don't know many Christians who at the end of their lives aren't like, uh-oh, what if it's, you know, what if it's not? 
You know, what if it's not? But, but I think, again, I, I think like on some level, if you believe in a God who is perfectly good and all loving and all knowing, and it, like if you've stretched your mind to the place where you can believe in those things, um, then I think you're able to believe. Then you go like, what would be the best thing imaginable? That must be true. And so the idea of living in a perfect utopia forever, like best thing possible. And you go like, if you believe in a God who does the best thing possible, then you're going to believe in heaven. And so I think that like, because my dad has experienced God as this good person who's capable of making a heaven, I think he believes in heaven for that, you know, for, he believes in heaven because he believes in God. All right. Um, I want to talk next about the, uh, the question of morality and ethics. Uh, your father uh, seems to be making the common Christian argument that morality is impossible without Christianity and that Christianity has the drop on objectively correct and absolute morality, which is a refrain um, I've heard often. And, um, and so you have a really good response to that. So I, was, uh, I would like to invite you to elaborate on that a little bit further. I always love that phrase, objective morality, you know? I have a friend, Phil Zuckerman, who's a philosophy teacher and a secular studies teacher at um, Pitzer College in California. He's written some books on, on secular morality. And one of the things that he says about that objective thing is he says, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is, is they go like, God says this is good, so then it's objective. And you go like, does God say it's good? Like, is it good because God says it's good? Or does God say it's good because it just is good? Because if it's good in and of itself, then you don't need God to confirm it. And if it's not good in and of itself, it's only good because of God's thing, then, then like, how do you, maybe it isn't good. Maybe God isn't good. He's like, I think one of the most important truths for me is like people say, like, Where do, what's your objective standard morality? Like, oh, there is no such thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's, always, it's always been subjective. Like living things, you know, the only like the ultimate and original value is the desire to survive and propagate, like from the single-celled organisms, survive and propagate. And what happens is, is you, Darwin will tell you how you get all this diversity from all that. And among the diversity that you get is you get mammals that survive by caring for each other, by nurturing their young. Some, some mammals survive by being social, like by creating tribes and packs and, and murders and whatever you want to call a gathering of like animals that cooperatively survive. And whenever you see that, the, what emerges out of that is our codes of behavior. That, and the code isn't, that what the code does is it sort of says like these are the behaviors that will cause us to survive best together this is what works for not you not me not the leader only this is what works for the tribe and and so morality emerges out of real world circumstances morality ends up sort of saying like look once we it's about life and it's about propagating life and there are certain things that if we do them we'll live and, and, and we'll be able to propagate. And there are other things that, that will cause us to die. And so morality is what works. And you say, well, but what works in one situation might not work in another situation. I go like, I know. And they, they'll probably end up with different codes. And like people in a desert, they, they place a higher value on preservation of water than people who live in Minnesota. You know, that, that, that the circumstances, but what, what, what they all have in common is they're all about like, what causes us to thrive as a tribe. And, and so for me, I, I'm really fascinated by the idea that when, when we're the ultimate test of whether something is right or wrong or good or bad has to do with whether or not it causes human beings to thrive and flourish. Makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I liked how you observed that um, people's interpretation of Jesus and his teaching, you felt told you more about them than Jesus himself. 
um, which also again goes to demonstrate the uh, subjectivity of Christian values as well. Can oh, you yeah, give us I mean, any yeah, examples? I mean, I mean, you know, people always say like, well, you know, the Bible, there's the objective word of God. You know, like there it is. It's right there. I'm like, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Like if you want slavery, I've got Bible verses for you. You want to abolish slavery? I've got another set of Bible verses. You want to subjugate women? I've got the verses. You want to liberate women? We can do that. You want to believe that God saves everybody in the whole universe? I've got verses that would suggest that that's true. You want to believe that God predestines almost everybody to burn in hell and only a select few will come into Christ? I got verses for that. Like you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And, yeah. And so, and, 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 and the vast diversity of Christian sects and, and Christian practices are, are a clear demonstration of that. Like, and they'll all say we're biblically based. <laughs> you know, it, I, you know, but 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 the subjectivity is is absolutely evident, and and Christian morality has shifted over the time. And I got, you know, when I was growing up, if you got divorced, you were disqualified from being in any form of Christian leadership. Now it's barely a bump in the road, and 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 you know, and the Christian view of women or the Christian view of alcohol or the Christian view of any number of things. It's changing right now. If the Christians don't change their minds about gay marriage, they'll die as a sect, but like they'll change their minds. They're coming around, you know? Um, and so I, I think that the notion of a fixed objective morality, um, it, 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 it simply flies in the face, not only of the secular experience, but of the Christian experience of the human experience. That's the way I see it. Um, I wanted to ask you too, and this might be out in left field a little bit, and you might not be able to answer, but your dad made a path, passing reference to um, uh, so it was it was when he was talking about uh, atheists having just as much of motivated reasoning as Christians do. And then he made a reference to scientists and and science in general and suggested that and I'll quote him here that uh, reducing reality to what can be understood only by empirical science has become passe. And I just kind of cottoned onto this phrase because I've, I've seen it in other Christian discourse, this idea that um, scientists are increasingly be, becoming convinced of the supernatural and of evidence of God through their scientific practice. And I read through my research and other interests, I read a lot of um, scientific discourse and I have absolutely never seen anything like this claim outside of Christian discourse where it pops up a lot. And so um, I just I was wondering, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you know what your dad's talking about here or what they're referring to here? Well, I think my, what my dad's talking about and what you're talking about when you talk about like in Christian discourse, they'll always find some scientist who you know, is, is, is in, is in the, is in the group. And they're like, look, we have a, this guy's a scientist at UCLA and he believes in God and he sees evidence for God. And, you know, there's always, they're always trotting out their, their, their scientists. Um, but I think, you know, science is, science is a process. And I think that, you know, I, I have, there, there is no, there is no vast scientific consensus that there is a supernatural. There is, however, a scientific consensus that there are lots of aspects of reality that we don't yet understand and that we may never understand. And that there are realms of experience, psychedelic drugs would be a good example, that like, that, or schizophrenia is another, like, that we don't really know how they work. We don't know where they are, we, but we see them. And, and, and there are experiences that we can't predict as well as other experiences. And so I think that there's plenty of mystery in science. And of course, every time science learns something, they open up a new set of questions that, you know, for every answer, they, they end up with 20 new questions. And so I'm not worried about the lack of mystery in science. Um, and But when my dad says, you know, so I think what my dad's talking about is like, look, there's dark matter. We don't understand it. There's this, that, that. He's like, the idea that the universe is nothing more than the material world as we see it is passe. I go, yeah, it is passe. Nobody thinks that. Quantum theory, nobody thinks. Nobody thinks that even the reality that we see in front of us is that we're capable of seeing everything that's going on. 
So I think like he's right there. But when, but when the, the evangelicals coming behind him sort of go like, and the scientists are saying like, see, there's th- that, that means there is a God. Like that's the old God of the gaps, which is like, here's the stuff we understand. All the stuff we don't understand, that's God. And then like, well, now we figured out thunder and lightning. Like, okay, well then there's this other stuff that we don't understand. That's God. Now thunder and lightning we've got, you know, like the, the difficult, the difficulty for me in believing in God is I, I, I just, it, I don't have any evidence for it and I've tried it and it didn't work the way I was taught it would work. God didn't respond the way I was told he would respond. I didn't experience what they told me that I would experience. Um, and so I just don't have any evidence for it, it, you know, but like, I can't discount it as a possibility. I, you know, I can't discount the possibility that Justin Bieber has deposited a million dollars in a Swiss bank account with my name on it. Like I could be a millionaire right now. Justin Bieber has that kind of money. Swiss bank accounts can be opened. Like, you know, it could be true. I'm not, and yet I don't spend a minute of my life making any human decisions based on the possibility that I'm a millionaire because I have no reason to believe that's true. It's a good way of putting it. So I wanted to ask you, because your father is such a major figure in American evangelicalism, and he's begun significant movements like the Red Letter Christians and has even served as spiritual advisor to President Clinton, did those achievements make it more intimidating for you to challenge his views face-to-face? No. I mean, my dad's my dad. Like, you know, people are like, what's it like to have a big shot like that as your father? I'm like, that's the only father I ever had. And... You know, and he and I have had a very interesting and close relationship throughout our throughout my life. And you know, he he was not raised to feel incredibly secure and to know he was. You know, to, to, he didn't have us. His father died when he was young. His father was an immigrant who didn't speak much English. Um, you know, it was a different era. I don't know how my father managed to raise me to feel so confident in myself and to feel so comfortable with him, but he did. And like of all his achievements, that's the one I'm most impressed by Um, because he pulled a kind of fathering out of his ear that he had not experienced himself, but he, he, he really made me feel comfortable. And so it never would have occurred to me not to share with my father what was really going on in my mind, because I know that as disappointing as it was for my father to realize that I was no longer part of the tribe, part of his tribe as a Christian, it would have been even more devastating to him were he to find out later that he didn't really know me. And that, and this book, this book is really, you know, him saying, help me understand, like, what, who are you? What are you thinking? How do you think the world works? Like, I don't get it. And I think by the end of the conversation, by the end of writing the book, you know what he says? Like, I get it. And he said, I still wish you were on my team. Like, I liked being in the same tradition with you. But he said, I can see that, like, what you're doing is meaningful. And and if there's a secular student on a college campus and they're not able to, and they're not going to believe in God. And he knew that there were students that were never going to believe in God. He said, I would so much rather have them be in your fellowship and pursuing love and meaning in the way that you're teaching them to do so than just out there in a fraternity drinking it up. He's like, I think what you're doing is valuable. I think what you're doing is part of building a better world. He would, he, I mean, he would ultimately say, I think you're doing the work of God without knowing it. And, 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 you know, you say, well, that's very, you know, that's very paternalistic. And I'm like, no, no, from his perspective, that's the best thing he can say about what I'm doing. And you say, like, well, what would you say about what he did? And I said, like, you know, there are a lot of people that will never not believe in God. Human beings are hardwired to believe in supernaturalism. It takes a lot of education and a lot of effort to not believe in supernaturalism. Um, and so there are always going to be people that believe in God. And my dad took that native belief and he 
packaged it in a way that really was about social justice and was really about serving the poor and really about loving people in a sincere way and made room for gay people and made room for all. Like my dad was a hugely humanizing force in the context of evangelical Christianity. And so what I would say is that he was making the world a better place and he was doing good humanism within the church. And so like, I'm not naive enough to think that someday everybody's going to think like I do. So I'm really supportive of people who share my values, even if they don't share my beliefs and that are able to package those values and promote those values and manifest those values in their communities, even as I'm trying to do it in mine. Um, I'm, 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 you know, like, I'm, I, you will not, I will not spend much time debating Christians. And if, if you read this book, you will find out that it is not a debate book. I am not trying to win. I'm trying to understand. And he's trying to understand. And he's trying to make himself plain. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the relationship that I have with my dad. Um, and, and, and I'm very hopeful that people that read this book will get some clues into how to have a better relationship with somebody on the other side of the faith divide. Well, that brings me to my last question then, because I was wondering if we could end on some words of advice for listeners who do find themselves having to negotiate these same difficult topics with loved ones and family members who have opposing views in much the same way as you and your father do. So you two found common ground and discovered effective means of communicating with each other. Can you share some advice for listeners? Sure. I mean, the first advice I would share would be obvious. Like you rush out and buy this book. It will be so helpful to you. Um, the last chapter has all sorts of tips. Um, and it's true. But like, in, 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 you know, seriously, what I would say is, is that the most important thing for us, uh, w- one of the things that's really important is for the secular person, You have to recognize that for the believer, if their belief system is such that they believe that if you don't agree with them, if you don't come back to the faith, you're going to burn in hell forever, that's going to make it very, very difficult for you to have the kind of relationship that you want to have. And so as a believer or as a secular person, I think if if your believing loved one believes that, you have to become a bit of a Christian theologian. And instead of saying, Christianity is bullshit, so don't worry about me going to hell because there is no hell. You've got to learn to speak in their language and, and, and find your way to those Bible verses, to those theological arguments that would give them hope or reason to believe that God might be able to save you, that there might be hope for you, even outside of the faith. And so in a sense, you have to, become, you have to learn to say in Christian language, isn't it possible that God's love is able to do abundantly more than we could ever hope or pray or expect, which is a Bible verse? Or isn't it possible that through G- that as in Adam all men fell, so in Christ all will be made alive? Is it possible that at some point every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Like, do you think it's possible that God could, you know, postmortemly? convert me. Like there's a whole set, a whole way of thinking. And you have to sometimes learn to sort of try to help your Christian relative get over their fear that you're doomed to burn in hell and at least leave open the possibility that God's love might be able to, to rescue you in the end, because otherwise they're not going to be able to be okay with you where you are. Um, that's, that's, that, that was a very important thing. Um, I didn't have to struggle with my, my dad was already there. And my dad already was the kind of Christian that believed that God's love extended far beyond those people that understood it. The second thing, bit of advice that I would have is, is that when you have to tell somebody that you've left the faith or that you can't believe any longer, it's really important that you don't show up guns blazing and say, I don't believe this for this reason. I don't believe this. It makes no sense. I don't believe this. It's much more important that you show up and say, here are all the wonderful values that you and I share. Here are all the things that I learned in church that I, that I still think are absolutely true. Sharing and forgiving and caring for people and being concerned about the needs of those who are less fortunate. 
Here are all these. I learned them in church. You know, there's, there's beautiful things there. And then that you express your, your, your unbelief, not in terms of like, I refuse to believe or I don't believe, or this makes no sense to me, but to rather to use the words, I can't believe. This is what I am unable to believe. I think it's, it's, it's much better to confess it as this isn't a choice for me. I'm not rejecting you. This is something that happened to me. My mind changed and I'm unable to believe in God anymore. And so I'm going to do the best I can to make a meaningful life. But, but, but it's not that I've chosen to reject you. It's that I've changed or I've been changed by what I've read, by what I've seen, by what I've experienced. I'm not able to do this anymore. That, that there's a subtle difference because a lot of times when somebody leaves the faith, the people that are left in the faith feel like they've been rejected and also that they've been told that they're stupid. Like I've seen something and you, and you can't see it. So like you're, you're an idiot. You're unable to see the truth. I think it's much better for you to say, I'm unable to believe in the stuff that we all, all, all believed in together for so long. Those, I mean, there's more. You know, and, and, you know, if somebody wanted to know more, like, like, have you written on this? Sure. Have you made podcasts about it? You bet. You know, <laughs> like, like, is this, is this something that you talk about all the time? Absolutely. This is my life work is to try to build communities of, of, of secular people that, that really are pursuing goodness together, but that also have enough humility and kindness to relate to Christians and, and to other kinds of believers in ways that are humane. And in ways that are hopeful and in ways that accept the fact that like, we're never going to live in a world where everybody believes the same stuff, but we can hopefully live in a world where everybody shares the same values. Wow. That's lovely. Well, Bart, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you again Ah. so much for taking the time to come on the show. I had a really good time chatting with you. Thanks so much for, for having such good questions and for being interested. I really appreciate it. Before we go, tell us what you're currently working on and where people can find you. You know, what I'm currently working on, I have this one local project where a bunch of my friends and I here in Cincinnati, where I live, have formed something called Cincinnati Caravan, which is just, if you walked into it on a Sunday morning, you would go like, wow, this is like a church for humanists. Um, And it's a really lovely little fellowship of people that are pursuing loving kindness together as a way of life because we're convinced that it's the best way to make the most of this life. Um, And so I work really hard on that community and it's been very hard in the COVID thing. And I, I, you know, and I I, I wish, I wish we were doing better on that, but, but that community is, is the, is is one of the main things I work on here locally. And then in, in the wider world, when I kind of got famous for being a deconverted Christian, I got overwhelmed with people writing to me and calling me, asking for, especially when they, when they read the book or they saw the movie that my dad and I, the documentary about us um, on Amazon, uh, it's called Leaving My Father's Faith. And when they see, when they see us relating that way, people call me like, how do I do that? How do I relate better to my parents? And, and I just got overwhelmed. Um, and so in the end, I started a podcast um, mainly so that I could, Instead of having 20 conversations a week, I could have one conversation a week and then say to the other 19 people, listen to the conversation. And so I have this podcast called Humanize Me that's about, roughly speaking, trying to figure out how to make the most of this life on the other side of faith. And, uh, and that takes a lot of my energy and time, but it is incredibly rewarding and it has a, has a, a pretty big audience and, it has, and it's a lovely group of people. And I feel like we're in a conversation that's helping helping us become more the kind of human beings that we want to be. So that's my big project is humanize me. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book. I hope others do too. And I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person. A humanist blessing upon your head, Carrie Lynn. (laughs) Wonderful. I will talk to you later. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Bart Campolo about his book, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, that he wrote with his father, Tony Campolo. 
If you'd like to find out more about our authors, you can check out bartcampolo.org and tonycampolo.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in secularism.